Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 11, verses 12 to 21, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 21. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called the house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. We see in the beginning of this passage one of the many proofs that our Lord Jesus was really man. We read that he was hungry. He had a nature and bodily constitution like our own in all things, sin only excepted. He could weep and rejoice and suffer pain. He could be weary and need rest. He could be thirsty and need drink. He could be hungry and need food. Expressions like this should teach us of the condescension of Christ. How wonderful they are when we reflect on them. He who was the eternal God, he who made the world and all that it contains, he from whose hand the fruits of the earth, the fish of the sea, the fowls of the air, the beasts of the field, all had their beginning, he Even he was pleased to suffer hunger when he came into the world to save sinners. This is a great mystery. Kindness and love like this pass man's understanding. No wonder Paul speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. Expressions like this should teach us Christ's power to sympathize with his believing people on earth. He knows their sorrows by experience. He can be touched with the feeling of their infirmities. He has had experience of a body and its daily needs. He has allowed himself the severe sufferings that the body of man is liable to. He has tasted pain and weakness and weariness and hunger and thirst. When we tell him of these things in our prayers, he knows what we mean and is no stranger to our troubles. Surely this is just the Savior and friend that poor, aching, groaning human nature requires. We learn in the second place from these verses the great danger of unfruitfulness and formality in religion. This is a lesson which our Lord teaches in a remarkable typical action. We are told that coming to a fig tree in search of fruit and finding on it nothing but leaves, he pronounced on it the solemn sentence, May no one eat fruit from you again. And we are told that the next day the fig tree was found dried up from the roots. We cannot doubt for a moment that this whole transaction was an emblem of spiritual things. 
It was a parable in deeds, as full of meaning as any of our Lord's parables in words. But who were they whom this fig tree was intended to speak? It was a sermon of threefold application, a sermon which ought to speak loudly to the consciences of all professing Christians. Though withered and dried up, that fig tree yet speaks. There was a voice in it for the Jewish church, rich in the leaves of formal religion, but barren of all fruits of the Spirit. That church was in fearful danger at the very time when this withering took place. Well would it have been for the Jewish church if it had had eyes to see its peril. There was a voice in the fig tree for all branches of Christ's visible church in every age and in every part of the world. There was a warning against an empty profession of Christianity unaccompanied by sound doctrine and holy living, which some of those branches would have done well to lay to heart. But above all, there was a voice in that withered fig tree for all carnal, hypocritical, and false-hearted Christians. Well would it be for all who are content with a name to live while in reality they are dead, if they would only see their own faces in the glass of this passage. Let us take care that we each individually learn the lesson that this fig tree conveys. Let us always remember that baptism and church membership and reception of the Lord's Supper and a diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity are not sufficient to save our souls. They are leaves, nothing but leaves, and without fruit will add to our condemnation. Like the fig leaves of which Adam and Eve made themselves garments, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls from the eye of an all-seeing God, or give us boldness when we stand before Him on the last day. No, we must bear fruit or be lost forever. There must be fruit in our hearts and fruit in our lives, the fruit of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and true holiness in our conversation. Without such fruits as these, a profession of Christianity will only sink us lower into hell. We learn in the last place from this passage how reverently we ought to use places which are set apart for public worship. This is a truth which is taught us in a striking manner by our Lord Jesus Christ's conduct when he was in the temple. We are told that he cast out those who sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And we are told that he enforced this action by warrant of scripture, saying, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of thieves. We need not doubt that there was a deep meaning in this action of our Lord on this occasion. Like the cursing of the fig tree, the whole transaction was imminently typical. But in saying this, we must not allow ourselves to lose sight of one simple and obvious lesson which lies on the surface of the passage. That lesson is the sinfulness of careless and irreverent behavior in the use of buildings set apart for the public service of God. It was not so much as the house of sacrifice, but as the house of prayer, that our Lord purified the temple. His action clearly indicates the feeling with which every house of prayer should be regarded. A Christian place of worship, no doubt, is in no sense so sacred as the Jewish tabernacle or temple. Its arrangements have no typical meaning. It is not built after a divine model and intended to serve as an example of heavenly things. But it does not follow, because these things are so, that a Christian place of worship is to be used with no more reverence than a private dwelling, or a shop, or an inn. 
there is surely a decent reverence which is due to a place where Christ and his people regularly meet together and public prayer is offered up, a reverence which it is foolish and unwise to brand as superstitious or confound with popery. There is a certain feeling of sanctity and solemnity which ought to belong to all places where Christ is preached and souls are born again, a feeling which does not depend on any consecration of man and ought to be encouraged rather than checked. At all events, the mind of the Lord Jesus in this passage seems very plain. He takes notice of men's behavior in places of worship, and all irreverence and profanity is an offense in his sight. Let us remember these verses whenever we go to the house of God, and take heed that we go in a serious frame, and do not offer the sacrifice of fools. Let us call to mind where we are, what we are doing, what business we are about, and in whose presence we are engaged. Let us beware of giving God a mere formal service, while our hearts are full of the world. Let us leave our business and money at home, and not carry them with us to church. Let us beware of allowing any buying or selling in our hearts, in the midst of our religious assemblies. The Lord still lives, who cast out buyers and sellers from the temple, and when he sees such conduct, he is much displeased. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for his glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do we believe that Jesus really does understand our weaknesses and sorrows when we bring them to him in prayer? Does knowing this encourage us to pour our hearts out to him all the more? Second, are we content to look like Christians before a watching world or to be Christians before the God who knows our hearts? Are we content with the leaves or, by the grace of God, are we bearing fruit for God's glory? Lastly, do we know something of the good fight of faith as we seek to worship God on Sundays in the midst of distractions and intruding thoughts? Or do we often and easily find ourselves thinking on other things than what is being said and sung?